Let's all remain standing for the reading of the scripture. The scripture this morning comes from Matthew 2 and starts in verse 13 to 23. It says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Make your way to uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Uh, book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and so uh, if you're trying to find your way around there, you kind of hit for about two-thirds of the way through. You should find a little division there. We're in Matthew, chapter 2, this morning. I read the other day of a, a professor who overheard an interesting conversation in a small local bookstore. It's one of those times where you cannot not hear what the people are discussing right next to you because it's such a small room. And a young man was apparently explaining to his friend how much he hated Christmas. Uh, not the not the hustle and bustle of the holidays or the stresses of family meals or, or things that people tend to complain about. What he hated about Christmas was the music. Uh, and then he explained why he found the music so bad. It wasn't just the, the syrupy and overly sentimental nature of it. It was that it was boring, as he said. And I quote, Christmas is boring because there's no narrative tension. It's like reading a book with no conflict. Christmas was boring to him. And if you think about the songs that often get passed off as Christmas music, not just in our pop culture, but sometimes even in the church, it's a pretty sharp but relatively accurate analysis. Uh, there's no narrative conflict. I mean, there's, there's no more conflict or tension in Jingle Bell Rock than there is in We Three Kings of Orient are. Uh, now, of course... Christmas is rightly a time of joy. It's rightly a time of celebration, of family tradition, uh, love, generosity, the anticipation of peace. But if that's all that we talk about, if that's all that we sing about this time of year, it's no wonder that the season can ring so hollow in a world that is not at peace when you look around. Uh, 
a world marked by false motives, by failing health, by family tension, flagrant violence. You know, for the man in the story, the, the tranquil lyrics of our Christmas songs couldn't encompass such terror as we saw last week in Connecticut, for instance. For him, Christmas felt out of touch with reality. And maybe for some of us here today, too, it just feels out of touch with reality. It's kind of like someone living in France during World War II and hanging a, pa- a painting of kind of an idyllic and, and serene landscape right over top of their window in order to shut out the war that's happening down the street. That's what it feels like. You know, it looks pretty, peaceful, but it's superficial. It, it doesn't do anything to deal with the deep and very real conflict that marks the world that we live in, life as we know it. But the reality of Christmas and of the Christmas story, if we listen to it in the scriptures, is anything but boring. Anything but boring. Not only does it acknowledge honestly the conflicted world that we live in, the chaos, the fear, the violence, it's the only story that provides an adequate solution to that conflict the narrative, to resolve the narrative tension of this world. And as we're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Christmas marks a cosmic battle, uh, a clash of two realms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this earth. And only one king will rise triumphant over both. Only one king. Though the kingdoms of this world rage against Jesus, and his kingdom. In the end, they will bow before him because he is the true king of heaven and earth and he is the one who makes right all that is wrong in this broken world. So let's pray together as we look at the story. Lord, we want to hear your voice this morning. Lord, every one of us here carries with us into this room uh, a whole variety of emotions on our hearts, the, the anticipation and excitement of this season, the joy of being reconnected with family that we haven't seen for so long, uh, and yet the worry of things that we wish we could just put out of our minds, but they're still there. Uh, for some of us, it's the pain of those who aren't able to be with us this morning, whether they, they simply couldn't travel or whether they are no longer living. Lord, there's a range of of emotions, there's a range of feelings uh, that represent our hearts, God, and you know every single one of them. So I pray that you would take this story, take your word, and minister to our hearts. Reveal yourself to us this morning. Show us who your king is and what difference he makes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us this morning, uh, we've been in the book of Matthew for just a few weeks and looking at the Christmas story through Advent. Last week, we looked at the story of the wise men in the first half of chapter 2, a story that is vintage Christmas. It's the stuff of Christmas carols and greeting cards and nativity scenes and so on. Uh, The magi or uh, non-Jewish astrologer magician type people from the East come 
traveling to find and worship the one born king of the Jews. Meanwhile, Jesus' own people react to the variety of alarm or anger or, or simply indifference to the news of his birth. And so in that story last week, we saw how the visit of the Magi signaled the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises that all nations of this earth would come and worship the King of Israel. They would worship God's eternal Son. The one born King of the Jews deserves the worship of all nations. That's what we saw. But as we now look this morning at the rest of chapter 2, and we take a closer look specifically at Herod, uh, King Herod's response to the news of Jesus' birth, Herod being the present king of the Jews, uh, we see a very different and a very troubling uh, reaction. Uh, we noted um, last week that uh, though we sing of we three kings, the wise men, we didn't know how many there actually were, and they weren't really kings and such. But we also noted that there are, in fact, two kings in this story, Herod and Jesus. And their kingdoms are set up to clash. And we see now what that battle looks like today. As one author advises us, banish all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes. Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. And so we see the threat of Jesus' kingdom in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Uh, Please look at those verses with me. Now, when the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, what could be so threatening about a little baby? You know, it's a little baby in a, in, a, in a little makeshift cradle. What could be so threatening about that that the king would plot to murder this child? Well, first we need to remember... Uh, the, the kind of violent paranoia that Herod was known for. Uh, we, we mentioned this last week, but as the ancient Jewish uh, historian Josephus told us about this king, Herod, how he slaughtered the last remnants of the dynasty that ruled before him. He put to death half the Sanhedrin, the ruling council uh, over the Jews. He killed 300 court officers, executed his own wife, and mother-in-law, and three of his own children. Okay? So, news of a new king that's clearly a threat, well, taking out the competition is par for the course for this kind of king. But we also need to remember that the conflict between Herod and Jesus marks a much bigger and more ancient battle, more ancient conflict, a clash between God's rule over his creation and the rebellion of both humanity and the spiritual forces of evil against God's rule. Ever since the beginning of creation, humans, like you and me, have been trying to throw off God's rule and replace it with our own. Uh, in Psalm chapter 2, it captures this 
this rebellious spirit at a national level. Psalm 2 reads, Why do the nations rage or conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ. So there's been an ancient rebellion in the hearts of humanity and in the expressions of how humans and nations react to God uh, that's been going on. But this human rebellion is a reflection of a rebellion taking place in the heavenly realm also. So books like Daniel or Revelation, uh, they use pretty graphic imagery, uh, pictures of gruesome beasts and cosmic chaos to describe the heavenly counterpart to this earthly rebellion uh, that's happening. As Herod prepares to dispatch his troops to slay the baby Jesus, Revelation 12 shows us what that scene looks like from heaven's perspective. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon, whom we're told later in this chapter, is that ancient serpent or the devil or Satan. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour the child the moment of its birth. She gave birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne right before the dragon could seize it. Now, that's a pretty graphic picture. That's not the scene that you kind of try and capture and then put inside a snow globe and sell at at Christmas. But that, That is the heavenly portrait of what is happening in the earthly realm at Jesus' birth. That's the kind of cosmic battle unfolding. That's the unrest and the tumult into which the Christ child was born. And yet, we see very clearly in Matthew that the darkness has not overcome the light. It has not overcome the light. God protects his son, the newborn king. He sends an angelic messenger to Joseph in a dream, telling him to escape to Egypt, Joseph does so immediately and not a moment too soon. Because Herod, who had kind of plotted that the wise men would, you know, when you find the child, come back, tell me where he is so that I might go and worship him. Uh, so he claimed. Herod flies into a fiery rage when he discovers that the wise men did not come back and report, but instead snuck out and returned to their own land in a different way. And so he strikes violently, leaving nothing to chance. Verses 16 to 18, we see the tragedy of Herod's kingdom. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity 
who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You know, at the time of Herod the king, um, Bethlehem was a pretty small town. Best guesses are maybe a population of about a thousand. And so scholars estimate there, there would have been about 20 uh, male children aged two and under at that time. And Herod killed every single one of them trying to take out this king. Scholars have long referred to this as the slaughter of the innocents, a phrase that several journalists applied to last week's tragic shooting, where 20 young children were taken out by a troubled and maniacal young man. There is tension and conflict in our world. This world does not work the way that it's supposed to. Not, it does not work the way God designed it. And unless we're honest about that, the Christmas story, is, is a, it's a simple temporary escape from reality. A thin veneer of joy that melts with the snow and gets boxed up in January and stuck in the closet for the rest of the year. But I think we see in this passage that the Christmas story very much reflects the reality of the world we live in and the war that unfolds. This is the story of human history, the story that's in front of us. The story of Herod is the story of every dictator who has ever sought to rule the world through terror, the story of every drug dealer who has violently defended his territory, of every abusive husband or father who takes his disappointment with life out on his wife and kids. It's the story of every bully who rules the locker room through fear and violence. And yet, it's far more subtle than that. I mean, we, we look at the incredible wickedness of, of Herod, or the incredible wickedness of what happened in Newtown. We are rightly outraged at that. But what we don't always realize is that the same evil lurks in our hearts as well. The same evil and sin in every one of our hearts. That same rebellious spirit against God's kingdom, even if it doesn't express itself in the same ways. Listen to how Paul Tripp describes the effect that sin has on every human. Sin causes us to set up our own little kingdoms of one, where our desire is the functional law of the land. And as little kings, we want to co-opt the people around us into the service of our kingdom purposes. And when they refuse or unwittingly get in the way of what we want, we rage against them. Sometimes it's the quiet rage of bitterness. Sometimes it's the vocal rage of angry and condemning words. And sometimes it's the physical rage of actual acts of violence against another. This is what sin does to all of us. We all participate in the rebellion against God to some extent. And we're all affected by that rebellion in some way. 
But as we look at this story, we see that the forces that are, are warring against God and his king and his people, the forces that turn this world upside down uh, from the way it's supposed to be, forces of chaos, of violence, of fear, of heartache, they will not prevail in the end. They will not prevail in the end. Though the nations rage against Jesus, they will all bow before him in the end. But they will not be defeated by the weapons of this world. I think that's where this story becomes surprising. Instead, the downfall of darkness will come in the form of a king who willingly takes that evil onto himself. The worst that this world can give in order to disarm it and defeat it ultimately through the cross and resurrection. So take a look with me at verses 19 to 23 and the triumph of Jesus' kingdom. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. So again, an angel appears to to Joseph and gives him an instruction. Again, Joseph obeys. Herod's dead. The threat's gone. We could pack up and move back to Israel. Though after hearing that Herod's son Archelaus is is sitting in his father's uh, seat as Ethnarch, a son who did not fall very far from the violent family tree, uh, Joseph is warned again, and instead of going back to Bethlehem or the Jerusalem vicinity, he heads home with Mary to Nazareth in Galilee. So tragedy averted, right? Right? We're set up for a happy ending now. If we know anything of where this story is going, we know it doesn't end well. We know that there will come a day, some 30 years later, when the forces of evil will catch up with Jesus. When another earthly kingdom will clash with him and his followers, with the full wrath of Satan behind it. And his own people will turn their backs on him saying, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. And Jesus will be crucified, executed on a Roman cross, with a crown of thorns on his head and a sign posted above saying, the king of the Jews. So, Why did God protect him in his youth if that's where he was going anyway? How do we see a triumph here? Well, first, we see that no one takes Jesus' life from him. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He really is the king of heaven and earth. And the only way he loses his life is by willingly laying it down. And according to God's sovereign plan, his hour had not yet come. And so God 
protected him. But we learn something else about God's sovereign plan for this king. That the life he lived was a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And we haven't said anything about it yet, but I hope you notice that three times in this passage, uh, Jesus is said to be a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We saw it in verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet. Verse 17. That was said that then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. In verse 23. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. Now, the prophecies of Matthew are not so much uh, predictions of something that might or will happen someday as they are patterns that Jesus takes up and fulfills in his own life. So Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, That passage in the Old Testament isn't a prediction of a coming Messiah, but a criticism of ancient Israel's unfaithfulness to God after he rescued them from Egypt. It reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, they burned incense to images. So, Hosea is criticizing Israel in their unfaithfulness to God as those he saved from Egypt. But Just as God's son Israel sojourned in Egypt and then returned to Canaan, so now we see God's son Jesus sojourning in Egypt and returning to the land of Canaan. Matthew's goal is to show how Jesus fulfills the pattern of Israel. He relives their story as their king and representative. He is and does everything that God's covenant people Israel were called to be and to do but failed to be and to do because of sin. And so Jesus takes up their story. He rewalks their steps. He goes to Egypt. He comes out of Egypt again. He succeeds precisely where they failed in order to establish God's kingdom and bring all nations back to God. We're going to see that theme unfold throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew as we keep going through it. That Jesus takes up the pattern of Israel and fulfills it. We see something similar happening in the path in the passage that Matthew cites from Jeremiah. And then he applies it to the massacre uh, of Herod. So if you look back in Jeremiah 31, we don't see a prediction of a coming massacre. We see a lament, a, a wailing prayer of, of heartache about ancient Israel's exile from the land. It's the imagery of Rachel, uh, Jacob's wife, one of the mothers of the nation of Israel. She's sitting there wailing and weeping and refusing to be comforted as her children are gathered at Ramah near her grave and being ready to be carted off to, to exile in Babylon. That's what Jeremiah 31 is talking about. Matthew takes that story and frames Herod's slaughter with that in order to tell us that the exile's not over, folks. It's an echo of, the, of the, the curse of exile, and you're still feeling it even today as Jesus is born. The, war, uh, the wars of hell against God and his people are still giving everything they've got. The promises of return from exile, the promises of the prophets in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so many Old Testament books... 
You know, Israel might be back in the land, but those promises are not yet fulfilled. We don't see the justice. We don't see the peace. We don't see the glory of Israel. We don't see the nations flocking yet. We don't see a king sitting on, on Israel's throne or a new creation, a new heavens and new earth. So much of the problem of exile still lingers in Jesus' day. And Matthew's telling us that, that it's still going on. We still need deliverance from that tragedy. But Matthew's also saying that deliverance has now come. That in Jesus, all of those promises, all of those unfulfilled hopes are now going to come to fruition. That in Jesus, the king of Israel, they find their fulfillment. A new kingdom is dawning. But it's not the same kind of kingdoms that we find in this world. It's not a kingdom of power and violence, of shock and awe like the kingdoms around us. Instead, this is a kingdom of humility, of self-giving love, and of a willingness to become an object of scorn in order to disarm the forces of evil and defeat them through the cross. And that's what the prophecy that Matthew mentions in verse 23 is talking about. You know, when you look at, at Matthew 2.23, and uh, you start flipping through the Old Testament to find the verse he seems to be mentioning, uh, it's not there. <laughs> there is no verse in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. Uh, but the thing to notice about verse 23 and what Matthew's doing is that unlike his other references to the Old Testament uh, in chapters 1 through 2, five, uh, 5 in total, Matthew's not citing a specific prophet here. Notice the plural word prophets, that what the prophets said might be fulfilled. So he's not talking about a prediction or even a quotation, but a theme common throughout the Old Testament prophets. The theme, specifically the theme of rejection and scorn, a theme that Jesus takes up and fulfills by being known as a Nazarene. So we see lots of places in the Old Testament where God's king is going to be rejected and become an object of shame. Think of Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so, in the Gospel of John, when someone hears that we found the long-awaited Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. This individual scoffs, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? That's like the sticks. That's the backwoods. Nazareth is a symbol of shame in that ancient world. It'd be like telling the intelligentsia of Boston that their savior and king is a redneck. That's the effect of this. It's, It's an object of scorn. Jesus was rejected because he was from Nazareth. He was also rejected by those in Nazareth, we see in Matthew 13. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But it was through embracing that shame, through taking the lowliness of this world on himself, not grasping at his own glory and power, but instead laying down his life in humility and self-giving love, that Jesus conquered the powers of darkness and established his kingdom. 
And he alone can deal with the narrative tension that we feel. The conflict in this world, in your life and in mine. All the bitterness and strife. All the anger and the betrayal. Every disease. Every cruel thought and every violent act. All that this evil fallen world can muster and collect and gather up together. The problems that we live with day in and day out. All of it, all of it was poured out on Jesus on the cross. All the scorn, all the shame, all the heartache. The cross was the epitome of shame in the Roman world. It was as low as you could get. Jesus bore that shame and evil for us. For us. He knows what it's like to be taken advantage of and rejected. He knows what it's like to be cast aside as worthless. But by taking on our shame and by willingly taking on himself evil's greatest threat, death, Jesus disarmed the powers and he embarrassed the shame. That's how Hebrews 12 describes what Jesus did through the cross. He endured the the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. See, as, as shameful as the cross was, by triumphing over it, Jesus made a mockery of that shame. In Jesus, we have victory over the powers of evil in this world, and we have freedom from the shame that we feel, that we carry in our hearts and in our lives. But more than that, in Jesus, we have a king who not only triumphs over evil, but who is able to reconcile rebellious sinners like you and me to a holy God. So people who know that we, uh, we don't have it all together, people who hurt not just because of what others have done to us, but because we know in our hearts what we've done to others, let alone God. Jesus took every offense, our rightful guilt and shame, and made it his guilt and his shame for us, that it might be done away with, that we might be completely forgiven, cleansed, having had our debt paid in full by his blood. 2 Corinthians 5, the beautiful, beautiful statement. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness that we might no longer be rebels, but instead be adopted into his family as children, children of the king. And it's only through faith in Jesus. Uh, We often get it in our heads. And if some of our Christmas carols have anything to help us with this, uh, we often get, us in, get it in our heads that, that God is waiting for us to clean up our own mess. We, we kind of mistake him for Santa Claus sometimes. You know, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why, because Santa Claus is coming to town. You know, he sees you. And, and we just think we've got we've to put our lives back together so that when, when God comes, we'll be ready and, and, and worthy. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. God is not asking us to make it up. We couldn't even do that if we wanted to. Instead, 
Jesus has done for us everything that God requires so that by his grace, by his undeserved love and favor, we might be forgiven and have new life in him. It's not about trying harder. It's about trusting Jesus, our king. To cling to him for our forgiveness, for the wholeness and healing we need, to rest in him and his victory over the darkness of this world, and to follow him as our king. You know, it's tempting when we consider the evil that this world can do. It's tempting to cower in fear before it. Uh, In fact, Jesus said, you know, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This world is not happy with Jesus claiming authority over it or those who announce his kingdom. And yet he also tells us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. In Jesus there is victory. We can rest in him. He's greater than the kingdoms of this earth. And so you you think of Psalm 46.10. Be still... Or in other words, cease striving and and fighting. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In Jesus, we have refuge and victory. We can rest in him in the face of whatever this world wars against us with. It's also tempting, though, uh, especially when the brokenness of this world barges into our lives uh, unexpectedly and uninvited. Uh, it's, it's tempting to respond to the kingdoms of this world in kind. So to return evil for evil when others hurt us or take advantage of us. That's not the way of Jesus' kingdom either. Uh, listen to how Jesus instructs his disciples later in Matthew 20 as they themselves were kind of arguing and, and trying to grasp for power in his kingdom. Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the, the, the pagan nations, the, the rulers lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So they play power games. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We serve a king who shows his greatness by taking a lowly position. Who shows his power by becoming weak. Who gives life by laying down his own life. And this is the pattern of his kingdom. This is the pattern he calls us to as those who trust him and delight in him and follow him as we declare the good news of his kingdom and make disciples of all nations. This is a hope in Jesus and his victory that's able to bear the weight of the fear and the chaos and the evil of this broken world. We can be honest about how bad it is because we have Resolution to the conflict in Jesus. 
though the worlds, the kingdoms of this world rage against him, in the end they will all bow before him. So whose kingdom will you follow? Where will you find your hope? May it be in Jesus this Christmas. May you taste in him the glorious resolution to whatever conflict and battle marks your life right now. And may he receive the glory due his name. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are our hope. And we thank you because we have no other hope that's a, that enables us to be honest about uh, our problems, our fears, our frustrations. No other hope that enables us to face them because no other hope can actually deal with them the way that you do through your cross and resurrection. Thank you that you are acquainted with our suffering Thank you that where we were rebellious, you were not. And so you can stand in our place as our substitute, as our representative. You can make right our broken relationship with your Father. Thank you that you can make all things new. And that's exactly what you came to do, Lord. So we pray that you would do it in our hearts. You would do it in the broken relationships, Lord. I think of the battles that have been brewing for 12 months and that are about to be unleashed over Christmas dinner as families reconverge, families with brokenness that goes deep, distrust that goes deep. Jesus, may you conquer that and bring sweet peace and reconciliation to those long hurts. We think of the loneliness uh, that many will face having lost loved ones this last year. We pray, Lord, for the Rideout family, for the Santella family, for the Cobbs and the Allens, the Della Genides, the Hopes, for Karen Thompson, for Rick and Wendy Mitchell, Lord, for others. There are vacancies this year that break our heart. Lord, may your victory over this broken world be hope and comfort and peace to us in that. May we rejoice that we have a king who's not, who in his weakness showed his strength to put all things back together. And Lord, may we not uh, take lightly the many blessings and benefits you give us. May we rejoice in uh, the family, in the food, in the generosity and love that we share. Uh, may we be thankful and receive these things as but a small foretaste of the joy and peace and love that comes when you return for your second advent, when you put away all darkness, when it, you destroy evil forever, and all that remains is the joy and glory and satisfaction of your new creation in your presence for all eternity. And what a feast that will be, Lord. May you lift our hearts and set them on that hope, God. Lord, we pray also for our missionaries who are laboring to declare your kingdom to the ends of the earth. 
May they be reminded of your presence this Christmas. We thank you for Chris and Kim Swanson and their labor through the crew ministry here in Boston, God. Would you give them the grace and strength they need uh, to continue to faithfully invest in the lives of young men and women? Would you raise up the staff team that they need to do this? Lord, we pray for those battling cancer. Um, Lord, some of these stories are long and drawn out, and they're, they're difficult, and you know you have been with them every step of the way. We pray for comfort and peace, and we pray for healing, Jesus. We pray that you would visit Steve Gerber in healing, Mary Boy in healing, Bob French and Rick Brown in healing, Lord. We pray, Lord, for special comfort for the Tershnitz family, Lord, as John went to be with you yesterday. Lord, as I I look at the uh, insert of those who donated uh, poinsettias in honor of lost loved ones this year, and I see John giving one in, in Helen's memory, thank you that they get to celebrate Christmas together, Lord, in your presence. I pray that you would bring comfort to his to their family. Thank you for the life that John lived, a life of faithfulness to you. What a sweet testimony, God. So we pray that you would be with them as they celebrate Christmas and, and then grieve uh, the loss of John, as we grieve his loss as well. Lord, may we all find the rest that we need in your victory, the courage We need in your presence a satisfaction in your grace, the joy in your cross, and the hope in your resurrection, Lord. May our hearts treasure you as our King, our King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.